This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we dive deep into the leap and spine of networking with Richard Scheffenegger. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio and with me today is my guest host, Dan Isaacs. Hi. Hi, Justin. I'm, I'm really excited about today's guest. So excited. I went deep into the closet and, and brought out one of my network appliance shirts. That is old school. Does it smell like mothballs? Smells like Naz. Smells like Naz. The sweet smell of Naz in the morning. Um, so joining us today is a very special guest. We flew him all the way over from Europe. Actually, he flew. He was already here. We yeah, flew I, flying. I flew over from San Francisco, actually. Oh, all the way over from San Francisco. Yeah. Indir- On my way back. On my way back. But he is from Europe. I'm not being like completely culturally insensitive here. He is, no, no, he is European. Yeah. He so doesn't, um, He doesn't just talk funny. He, he doesn't he just is. talk funny. He is funny. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> With us today, Richard Scheffenegger is uh, joining us. So, Richard, what do you do here at NetApp, and uh, what sort of things are you involved with? So I'm uh, with NetApp since almost 15 years, and uh, actually, when I was hired, I uh, signed up for, um, we at the time had a product called NetCash, and I have a very strong background in all kinds of networking. Unfortunately, the NetCash product went away, but then I put my uh, skills to good use with uh, ONTAP, and I believe uh, they are still very valuable. Yeah, I think ONTAP is doing okay. It's which, all right. Yeah, it's doing all right. Yeah. I mean, there's no net cash. But <laughs> 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 so, um, Richard, uh, if you, you, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, but we covered networking, and you know, a few weeks ago, and we're going to cover networking in more detail today. We're going to try to go over some tips and tricks and best practices, and actually talk about some things that are interesting to you in the future. Uh, but let's talk about the last episode, uh, episode 172. You had listened to it, and you wanted to bring up some points that we didn't cover in that episode. Yes, so, so what did you want to bring up? So uh, I was uh, uh, listening to this, uh, this episode. Obviously, it uh, has a good uh, coverage with uh, what where my interests are. And I think it was a very great in, uh, interview with uh, the engineering folks and also, um, obviously, product management. However, from uh, my point of view, and I have to say that I'm basically um, over in Europe, we have only field people, basically, um, something has completely missed there. And that's uh, the interaction of the virtual IP feature and how it interacts with uh, disaster recovery. Wait, 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 is that important? I think so. Okay, continue. <laughs> so, as you may know, in Europe we have a very large presence of Metro Cluster. Metro Cluster is basically the product that has been designed uh, in the beginning or mostly sold over uh, only in uh, Europe. So, having that said, the uh, virtual IP feature will allow you or does allow you to stretch between uh, sites that are not uh, layer 2 connected. And very often uh, there are certain constraints which simply do not allow you to deploy uh, disaster recovery um, installations, which currently require layer two, stretch layer two networks uh, between more than one site. Whereas with the virtual IP feature, you have uh, not only an active mechanism to let the network know, know where the IP address now resides, 
which is uh, quite uh, an improvement over what we have uh, currently with leaf migration. We're basically sending out some ARP requests and hope that the clients will uh, will pick them up. And if they don't, you have like five minutes of the client not being able to talk to the storage um, until you know MAC addresses age out and get uh, re-asked by the client itself. Um, with virtual IP, we actually uh, actively update the network. So that takes uh, much uh, uh, less time and uh, you do not have to have the stretched layer 2 connectivity. Uh, a simple m or more common layer 3 routed network between the sites is all that you need to have. And that actually opens up a lot of, uh, of opportunities which we, until uh, the virtual IP feature came to be, we, c we simply couldn't address. So could you give me an example of like a scenario where prior networking before virtual IP, it wasn't possible to do that? Like, so give me like a use case. So, for example, as I mentioned, so many customers uh, will have um, one, say, on-prem uh, deployment, one on-prem installation, and uh, then they may have a backup uh, site, a DR site, that is uh, co-located. And uh, Indexion will charge you a leg and an arm for having layer 2 connectivity. So that's a, a big uh, thing, uh, and uh, if you can get away without layer 2 connectivity, with simple layer 3 connectivity between the sites, but uh, can retain the more or less uh, interrupt-free mobility of uh, the lifts, that's a great win. Excellent. So it's opening up new doors with this virtual IP feature in areas that we didn't really necessarily understand before. No? Exactly. And they were actually not on the on the plan by product management uh, to begin with. So it's like, a, like an additional benefit of that feature uh, that uh, just came to be. Excellent. So, good. Virtual IP is even better than we thought. Indubitably. So, um, how does virtual IP interact with something like metric cluster over IP? Is it, does it really matter or is it you know, doing anything differently there? It's actually like two ships in the dark. Virtual uh, IP feature does work with Metro Cluster IP. It has been tested. So um, uh, in the past, it was very often the case that Metro Cluster uh, didn't get all the features that you would have in ONTAP um, uh, from the beginning. But uh, at least for the virtual IP feature, that was uh, tested early on with Metro Cluster. Uh, it has no immediate interaction with MetroCluster because it's really all about is another way of how you do uh, lift migration, basically. I mean, that's how you can think of it. Um, and uh, um, MetroCluster only cares that the lifts do migrate, but it doesn't care how they migrate. And it, that's the it's really two different aspects, Justin. The, the virtual IP is a front-end host facing kind of thing, whereas Metro Cluster IP is right. I just didn't. I didn't know if the, the, the VIP stuff actually replicate data was used within the Metro Cluster IP interface piece. No, it's on the back end. Yeah. It's yeah. not on the back. It's all, end. Okay, so it's all front end stuff. It's all front end stuff. But the good part here is it does not uh, break anything with Metro Cluster. It works just uh, seamlessly. Exactly as you would ex imagine. And obviously the other, so we, we are talking MetroCluster all the time, but we do have another uh, feature, uh, SVMDR. And again, SVMDR, with, as the name suggests, with the DR, uh, disaster recovery, again, a prime example where virtual IP uh, can save uh, the complexities of setting up uh, the network because you're basically interacting with the network on layer 3 instead of having to you know, set up layer two uh, connectivity all the way from from all of your uh, sites. Yeah, and you mentioned simplicity, but it also is you know minimizing disruption because, like you said, if a client can't figure out what the new IP address is and where it lives, it's going to wait five minutes for right. for that ARP cache to clear. So, 
Yeah. I mean, it's not very common, but it's really, it's really more um, uh, 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 a demonstration of how good networking actually is, even though it's not done reliably. So the regular lift migration is not using a reliable protocol to update clients. Nevertheless, it's very rare to see any, any problems there. Okay. And when you do see them, you notice them. <laughs> Yeah, but it's only, I would say, one or a handful of clients, not not generic. Not general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying this is going to take down your entire environment, but it, it is annoying. Okay. Yeah. Right. The only thing, uh, obviously, that uh, that virtual IP feature uh, does bring up is you're now having to, um, you have a different type of architecture in the network. So in the, in the, in the old times, you basically had uh, the clients and the storage lifts living in the same subnet. Uh, and that's how we've basically been uh, uh, um, talking about these things for ever. And with virtual IP, we are actually doing uh, this over layer three. So you need to have some layer three um, devices in there. The architecture um, of the network, how the clients connect to the storage is slightly different. Um, and uh, that's certainly uh, something that is a change in, in how we would have to approach these things. So for, for example, um, the entire um, reliability thing now also includes uh, things like that you make sure that from the client's perspective, the default gateway of the client is always reachable. So you have to deploy features in the network like uh, VRRP or uh, HRSP or GLP, GLBP. It's Yeah, so it's probably easy if I, if I, if I, if I pronounce them in, in full. It's a virtual router redundancy protocol um, hot uh, routing standby protocol and uh, general load balancing protocol, uh, two of which are, I believe, uh, Cisco specific. The other one is uh, is open source uh, or open standard. Um, so you need to deploy these things in the network, but they should be deployed in the network anyhow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more modern devices are going to have that support. But if you're running switches that are yeah, you need 20 years old, you probably should. Yeah, even even 20 old, uh, 20 old switches will have that. But uh, you still have to enable these features. Oh, you have to enable them. They're not yeah. enabled by default. There you go. We covered what the episode talked about with uh, virtual IP and BGP. I feel like we should probably give your general overview of what those are, just in case people aren't going to go back and listen to episode 172, <laughs> right? So virtual IP and BGP, um, generally speaking, what are those things? So BGP is uh, is a uh, routing protocol. So pronun uh, my pronunciation may be different. <laughs> um, that's uh, quite extensive. So there's a, there's a joke between nerds. Uh, BGP is Turing complete, meaning <laughs> using the BGP protocol, you can simulate any other computer. Huh. It's interesting. But we have only implemented, or actually we're using only a very small fraction of that capabilities, basically just to uh, update the network with the updated um, uh, routing information of where a specific uh, uh, lift uh, lives on a specific node on a specific site. Um, and BGP then um, takes that information, puts it into a routing table, and you have different other routing protocols either still BGP or OSPF, what have you, um, to basically update the entire routing domain so that the, the ultimately the uh, default gateway of the clients also knows how to reach that lift. So, so with BGP, are we essentially sending routing information as opposed to having switches store it? Exactly. But the, uh, BGP works on layer three. Yep. So, so as far as um, 
you mentioned default gateways, uh, and we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast. How often do you see people setting the default gateway, and how often should they not? I hardly see people uh, configuring the, the SVMs on our side uh, uh, correctly for layer 3, actually. So most of the times, as I mentioned, uh, we um, uh, have architectures where basically the, um, the clients and the live live in the same subnet. And you do not do you do not have to have any uh, additional routing information set up there. So that's uh, that's how it works. Um, with uh, the virtual IP feature, however, you need to have uh, on both ends, both on the clients and uh, on the uh, on the SVM that hosts the live, uh, a proper routing configuration, because otherwise uh, there won't be the proper forward and backwards routes for full re- uh, for proper reachability. Yeah. So if you do, if you don't set something, then it just doesn't know how to send that information. Yes. I mean, it's not it's not that it's this is an information that has been hidden somewhere. It's just something that you can get away without doing most of the times currently. But you need to really do this if you're setting up virtual IP. Okay. So let's also talk about virtual IP. So give him a little more information about virtual IP and how it works in ONTAP. Virtual IP as a feature is uh, really a way by which the storage system is actively uh, interacting with your routers. And uh, it has a reliable protocol, which is a, a different to what you usually have with uh, Live Migrate to uh, actively update the routers. And um, again, so the uh, it's a very straightforward, relatively straightforward um, setup once you're done with the basics. The basics is basic is really to uh, set up the connectivity pe- between each node and uh, a router that speaks BGP. You have to do that uh, at least once for each uh, uh, neighboring uh, BGP router. For redundancy, I would recommend to have two uh, BGP routers. Uh, talk to your network admin. This is this may be a good uh, uh, opportunity for storage admins to come in t- to get in touch with uh, the networking guys and uh, uh, talk to them uh, of uh, great features that they usually run in their network and how these features can interact with the storage. So um, networking guys are kind of grumpy. If I'm a storage admin, how do I approach the storage admin, the network admin? Do I bring them cookies, coffee? <laughs> I don't know how it works in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> so, but, but, but I mean, you know, uh, asking nicely that you have this new feature and you need... Uh, the expertise of the of the network admin. Oh, you got to stroke their ego. Yeah, yeah flattery. exactly. <laughs> flattery will get you everywhere that's, with that's, a network admin. Um, so that goes with everybody, right? That's right. So while we're working backwards here, because you know we, we we went from deep dive into high level, let's go ahead and go all the full gamut and talk about TCP at a high level. Yeah, so, so finally, yes, please. Yeah, I, I'm very excited to you know I I work in the uh, in the future where everything's super fast and in NVMe land, and the latest and greatest thing in NVMe land is NVMe over TCP. So I need to know more about TCP. Uh, So I would tell you a UDP joke, but you might not Not get get it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, TCP, continue. So I don't know a TCP joke. I did did mention the BGP one, right? Have you ever seen the, the graphic of TCP versus UDP? So UDP is basically someone just splashing water all over their face. And TCP is them gen- gingerly drinking the water bottle. That's that's the only TCP joke I know. Okay. And it's a graphic. It's a meme. So, Richard, <coughs> TCP. So, uh, where to start? So, TCP really is uh, the way how the Internet 
prevents itself from from exploding, imploding, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. It's really controlling the flow of data, just as uh, in your in your picture, um, to to let you know or let the sender know um, how much capabilities uh, is currently available in the network, and not to excessively oversaturate networks buffers in the switches for example uh, and also uh, the other aspect obviously um, currently networks rely on packet loss to give this information of overload situations back to I mean this is a natural thing you're getting overload situation you can't handle additional packets anymore you drop the packets uh, as a switch or even sometimes as a receiving nick when the when the when the host is not fast enough so we see that a lot I always uh, smile a little bit when I see people uh, exposed the first time uh, to our systems and then we basically drive uh, 40 gigabits of, of actual traffic, not just simulated traffic, actual data traffic into hosts and the hosts uh, very often simply can't handle that. So they drop packets, not necessarily networks, hosts sometimes. Um, and that basically, uh, this uh, these drops indicate to the sender, hey, I'm doing something wrong, I'm, I'm overdoing it. Uh, I'll better throttle back a little bit. So TCP is basically the, the mechanism by which um, the sender knows um, how much data to inject into the network without uh, overloading the network so that uh, you, do, you avoid excessive packet losses and uh, you get a smooth flow of data into the clients. So how does it do that? What does it use? What mechanisms are in place? So um, TCP is not a monolithic protocol as uh, people may think. Uh, it's really a, a cumbled together assortment of various mechanisms uh, that have accumulated over time. Uh, so in the beginning, uh, and we are talking here uh, early 1980s, uh, TCP would simply only care about um, eventually getting the data over to the receiver as fast as possible. But uh, that led in 1984 to the large internet meltdown. <laughs> I didn't even know this existed. Did you know this existed? I didn't. I didn't realize the internet was big enough in 19. So tell me about the Not internet. Is this was this war games? <laughs> it is, it's basically war games times. Yes, right, exactly. So this is what happened during war games, right? So that's uh, that's basically all the 50 odd or 70 odd uh, hosts that were connected at the internet at that time would basically try to uh, to send out uh, the data that they were supposed to exchange with each other um, at a at a ever increasing rate because uh, enough packets got dropped that they uh, couldn't any uh, data out of the packet uh, out of the network so they started sending more packets into the network which was already overloaded uh, which then dropped more packets which made uh, even less packets come out of the network at the other side which caused the senders to inject even more packets and that was the large internet meltdown in short didn't orwell write about this <laughs> uh, no he wrote about uh, endless september oh okay isn't that what the packets are? Endless packets, September. So, uh, Richard, continue. So the good thing here is that um, obviously there was a mathematician involved, uh, Van Jacobsen, and he invented this thing called congestion avoidance. Uh, so basically that's one of the mechanisms that you will uh, generally know of by a name like Reno or New Reno, or nowadays the more modern variant that we will be um, having in uh, ONTAP 9.6, uh, TCP cubic. That's really the way of... Um, how much do you back off when you observe the network is not up to the task with delivering all the packets that you just sent? And uh, how do you go about uh, recovering these packets in a timely fashion? So 
also involved in this are things like window sizes, right? And, and adjusting window sizes dynamically, or so that's that that was actually what led ultimately to the internet meltdown. Basically, you only had these receive receive window sizes, obviously at much smaller scales than we when we have to deal with um, today. Um, but if you only have basically the client telling how much it is capable or believes it is capable of uh, receiving, um, and you do not. Um, heed any information from the network, uh, you're likely to overload the network when the network is not um, capable enough uh, to g deliver the entire speed that you would have between the uh, the senders and the receivers. So it's basically three communicators there, this, the client, the server, and the network, and they're all negotiating this TCP connection. Uh, the network is not directly involved in that, but uh, the, um, the TCP is basically where the intelligence resides. The uh, the um, the rise of Ethernet IP really has to do with the network being really very dumb. So compared for uh, compared with uh, uh, SAN technologies like fiber channels, for example, um, the network is much more smart. Uh, much of these um, capabilities that are uh, that are residing in TCP um, are really uh, baked into the switches with uh, fiber channel. Uh, so. Um, People don't have to think that much about uh, their hosts because all of that is being taken care of in the HBAs and in the SAN switches. Whereas with TCP/IP, um, that again, it's cost savings, right? Uh, you do not make the, the network switches very smart and very fancy. You do not make the network interface cards uh, very smart and very fancy. But you have the, the majority of the intelligence of how to deal with all of these things uh, in the software, in the end hosts. The upside here is that it's comparatively easy uh, to fix any any problem that you ha may have had. Whereas if it's like a, a, an HPA or something, uh, updating firmwares or perhaps even updating the silicon, that's much more um, uh, problematic. So congestion avoidance does flow control fall, fall into that at all? I mean, so the receive window that you mentioned—that's that's, that's uh, what uh, would be uh, subsumed under flow control, uh, meaning um, I'm I'm telling you so I'm able to receive a certain amount of data, and uh, we uh, at NetApp are using flow control TCP flow control very extensively uh, when you're talking the NFS protocol. So for the uh, for the NFS implementation that we are using, there's a very very um, aggressive interaction between uh, the NFS implementation and um, uh, and TCP uh, to um, to use flow control much more extensively than uh, what you would have in uh, in regular clients nowadays. Yeah, and that flow control is basically there to stop rogue clients from taking down your network, essentially, right? Right, but that's from the client side, basically. So when when basically there's a rogue client talking too much NFS. Hardly ever happens. <laughs> Hardly, but if it did, if it did, so you would see this as zero windows. If you uh, zero window um, um, thing in the in the network trace, um, then it basically says uh, slow down a bit until the NFS server, until the application can uh, can keep up with that. Um, that's one of the aspects that was there in TCP forever. Um, that's not directly related to the network. So that doesn't interact at all with the network that's just an interaction of the receiving client with the sending mm -hmm. with the sending side which right. in terms of nfs the sender if you if you're talking nfs writes the sender is basically the client and the server is uh, uh, the server is uh, is the nfs uh, uh, server okay 
So on tap essentially yes. in that case. So I, I brought up flow control because one of the most common questions at NetApp, and I, I think you already know where, where I'm going with this, <laughs> to flow control or not to flow control? You're talking about a different flow control. Yeah, so <laughs> and that's that's where I was. Yeah, so it was, it was a, a smooth transition. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's do that. Okay, so there's another flow control. Uh, so there's a there's a mechanism that is actually um, inside of the Ethernet stack. So really layer down uh, layer two, um, talking link on the link basis, link by link, uh, and that's uh, something uh, that's all co- also called flow control. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, it's uh, a mechanism that is an all or nothing, um, meaning uh, you can, with flow control, you're either allowing the send, sending of data of, of packets or you don't. Uh, you don't for a specific uh, period of time. The problem that I have with, uh, with flow control, quite frankly, is yes, it's, uh, it's a standard. It's an IEEE 802.1Q, what have you, uh, standard. But um, it's only specifying how you how these packets look at the wire and you will be actually hard pressed to ever see one of those unless you have specialty gear because every uh, nick and every switch will basically extract that data and prevent you from actually seeing it so you need to have special gear if you really want to like an actual packet sniffer like your physical hardware thing physical hardware yep. exactly yes Otherwise, this is all under the hoods or behind the... Tr- what is it called? The, is it behind the curtains? Yeah, like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, and as in the Wizard of Oz, um, you better trust the implementers that they have done the right thing because uh, you cannot really see what's going on behind the curtain, right? And in my experience... Uh, that's very often not the best recipe uh, to make this, these things uh, work properly. Uh, so, for example, um, there's, uh, there's one approach where basically you say, um, I'm overloaded, please stop sending me data for, for the, um, uh, the maximum amount of time uh, that is in this protocol. So, y- you have basically this, this, this timer uh, that is being exchanged and you simply set this timer to the maximum. And if then the receiver says, okay, now I'm no longer overloaded, I'm sending out basically an update, an, an X on, which basically is the same packet with a timing with the timing set to zero. Um, but it's up to the implementer on the other side uh, to, uh, to really uh, adhere to these standards properly. And uh, obviously the, the last piece of puzzle that's uh, also missing and that's also not really specified is that the, the time between... Um, when the threshold is reached when you send out the flow control uh, and the timing it, it takes to actually send the, f- uh, the, the frame to the other side and then the time it takes to process on the other side this, f- uh, this frame to actually stop sending, uh, that's also not really uh, strictly specified. Um, some other implementations, for example, they never send X on. They will, will rely on the timer to expire but sometimes they may uh, implement these things by adjusting the time duration depending on some uh, um, investigation of how the queue um, shrinks or, or, or um, grows over time and then estimate of how much, uh, ma- uh, how much time uh, the pause should last. But again, it, needs, it relies basically on, the, on, the, on, on both ends having a decent implementation of flow control uh, and that works 
fairly well if you have basically the same hardware or the same vendor on both ends. But if you have, uh, like it is common in Ethernet, um, different vendors on each end, it may not work as uh, as well. So the question is still unanswered. <laughs> <laughs> That's another it depends. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is why I'm a SAN guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward there, and it's, it it really depends. So so f point in case I've been uh, I've been uh, here in the United States uh, exactly for a problem uh, uh, that was uh, that was basically revol revolving around this and uh, shallowed buffer switches, um, and how do you do how you go about um, making shallowed buffer switches uh, interact more in a more s in a more how do you say it in a more mature, uh, uh, efficient, modern. Working, working, <laughs> Fun functional. functional, functional. All right, in a more functional way, uh, with uh, with uh, storage traffic. Uh, matter of fact is um, uh, that uh, these uh, shallow buffer switches, as the name implies, they have very shallow buffers. Uh, very often too shallow for uh, regular TCP, the TCP variants that we've uh, that we've uh, discussed earlier, uh, to work um, if you, uh, effectively uh, 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 across them, especially if you have um, a speed change. So if you say if you go from a storage system with 40 gig oh, to a yeah. client that is connected only with 10 gig or 25 gig, the switch has to buffer. No matter the marketing terms that uh, your switch vendor will will throw at you, like uh, cut through and and zero zero latency and stuff like that, um, these switches will have to buffer because simply, when packets arrive, even a single packet arriving at 40 gig cannot be sent out at the same speed over 25 gig link. Right? I mean, yeah. Is it, is it one of the things we have to do to, to mitigate that issue? Use and flow control flow control is very often placed uh, uh, or put a, a, a here as a mitigation mechanism. Well, I've also heard uh, where if you if we have those 40 gig uh, front end ports on the uh, NetApp controller, using the uh, four by 10 gig uh, breakout cables, right, will, will, will that, prevent that. That would be that would be a different that would be a different approach. Um, obviously, that uh, the way that how that works is basically a single TCP session will not uh, exceed the link speed of a single of these uh, of these 10 gig broken yeah. out ports, uh, thereby you're not going to oversaturate uh, the switch with a single uh, TCP session. And I mentioned, so I I often see starry eyes by network admins when, I, when they uh, first-hand experience uh, storage systems that are actually capable of driving yeah. uh, 40 gigabits or more uh, uh, of actual data, not just simulated data, uh, over their network. That's uh, that's something that they very often still are like uh, taken aback that... Uh, that uh, uh, boxes that can do this exist. So one thing I'm hearing out of this is if I'm a storage admin or somebody who's looking to buy a storage system and I'm looking at one of these shiny all-flash systems with 40 gig Ethernet, I really need to have a discussion with my network team first. Yes. Because I need to understand that what I'm buying isn't going to cause bigger problems. So the the as long as the clients and the and the storage system are basically running on the same link speed, even though uh, the clients uh, typically don't uh, don't consume that uh, much bandwidth on average. Um, the thing is, if you look at these uh, these uh, traffic patterns with a microscope, so we are talking here now no longer ab about human timescales and measured in seconds or even minutes, but we are talking about timescales measured in nanoseconds and mi microseconds. Nice. Um, then that's, that's then where I like to be. <laughs> then uh, the storage system really blasts out the traffic at the wire speed, uh, and uh, um, TCP. Uh, to to circle back here, TCP basically works again on a slightly higher 
um, time scale, a longer time scale, than flow control. So, in certain environments, flow control can have uh, can be beneficial, especially as mentioned uh, when you have these uh, these uh, speed mismatches. Um, however, the, uh, it's it's just as likely that flow control in your specific environment is uh, detrimental to um, a specific. Uh, setup that you may have, say, uh, you have, or you have, you're running a single instance um, HANA database, which really demands, which really drives uh, bandwidth, and uh, if you deploy flow control there, uh, you may impact the the maximum bandwidth that is attainable by that particular client. Mm -hmm. So again. There is unfortunately no single-cut answer about around Ethernet flow control um, to deploy or not to deploy. It really m matters how your specific environment uh, looks and uh, what the tra traffic patterns are in there. So is, is there a way you can know beforehand, or is this something you just have to... You have to test monitor and, and change. Yeah, you have to. Needed. You basically you have to test it out. So there are there are different phenomena in uh, in the Ethernet IP space um, uh, having to do with um, basically. Um, the packet drops that uh, invariable um, occur unless you're deploying something called explicit congestion notification. Um, and as soon as you have packet losses, if these patterns of packet losses interact negatively with you, you can very often run into something that's called a retransmission timeout. Mm -hmm. And the retransmission timeout, just to give an, uh, an example, that's uh, one TCP session that's not doing any progress for something in the order of a quarter second to a second. So say your, 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 your perfect database doesn't do anything, no transactions going on for a quarter of a second. That's a lot. That's something that you can actually feel even when you're in front of a, of a web client with an intermediate uh, uh, um, application server, which only then talks to the, to the uh, database. A quarter of a second is something that you can feel. The good part here is virtually all uh, all devices that you connect with uh, TCP/IP over Ethernet have a counter, which will uh, which will tell you these retransmission timeouts. And if you see that counter increasing, and if it's uh, if you see that counter increasing a lot, you better do something about it. Yeah, and if you're looking at the storage system, you can go into ifstat dash a and get that information you can get the you can also get the x off x on information to tell you so the control the x on f x off that's that's the that's the f stat as you uh, correctly mentioned but uh, this retransmission timer you would go uh, to you would use uh, netstat minus s okay so that's a different that's more of the that's tcp the, piece and not that's yeah exactly it's on the tcp layer there's also a netstat dash p which tells you about extreme flow control and if you go uppercase P on the latest versions, you will we will know exactly which particular TCP session is having the problem. Life hacks. <laughs> so uh, to to circle back here a little bit, um, again, a retransmission. So I'm I'm on a crusade. I would want to say uh, to eradicate uh, these retransmission timeouts. Again, they are they are like um, uh, we're talking a lot in uh, in storage. Uh, space about reducing latency so now we've arrived in uh, sub 100 microsecond uh, re regions and then you have this thing here when you're talking about uh, um, storage traffic across ethernet so it doesn't really matter that much if you're talking nfs uh, sifs or smb or iSCSI all of them are basically affected um, and even theoretically iWarp and NVM over TCP mm -hmm. uh, can be can be affected by this problem. As soon as you have a retransmission timeout, 
everything stops dead for an excessive amount of time. And so you really don't want to have this. Coming back to the Ethernet flow control, Ethernet flow control is one way to mitigate this particular scenario, but very often at the cost, as mentioned earlier, of peak throughput. Uh, and it also can in, uh, introduce a higher a variability in, in, uh, in the throughput between different clients. So you're basically trying to, are you trying to eliminate the retransmission timeouts or basically have it be more of a configurable thing where it's not so extreme? So fortunately, it is actually uh, configurable. So um, if you're having a problem which you cannot work around with uh, flow control or where flow control is, uh, is not the, um, the proper choice for other reasons, perhaps it's, uh, it's, it's basically impacting to, uh, to other uh, traffic uh, is too high. Um, one way to, to mitigate this is, as you mentioned correctly, uh, to tune these um, uh, settings. So uh, we do have these product variation uh, requests. Uh, that's something that you can talk to uh, your sales rep at all times and say, I need something better. Please provide me with these uh, improved settings. Excellent. Hopefully that'll make that into an official release and we won't have to PVR the, it. Again, it depends because uh, the default settings are not there for just because somebody hasn't made any. Oh yeah, yeah, it. absolutely. They're there for a reason. But right. so ha if you, if you having only, toggleables is, is a nice if you, addition. If you only change them on on one side, that's not uh, that's not really going to help because uh, these are reliant on basically, as mentioned earlier, TCP really is about the sender and the receiver. So if you if you optimize some settings on the sender, you're probably going to need to optimize these settings on the receiver as well. Um, some receivers do allow this. Um, uh, one notable exception is uh, TCP Linux, which has uh, these particular settings are fixed. So you would have to run your own binary, which is not something that many people fancy. <laughs> no, <laughs> that'd be terrible. Um, if you have uh, if you have different operating systems in there, they very often come with these uh, settings configurable. And on the other hand, you may do away with uh, packet losses altogether. Please. So how would I do that? What are they, how do packet losses happen, and how would I get rid of those? So packet losses happen uh, by basically switches uh, being dumb. Uh, you can imagine that a switch has a little bit of buffer memory, as mentioned. So, for example, if they have to go from a higher speed to a lower speed, um, they buffer some of these uh, packets uh, um, while on the way. But eventually, if, uh, if you continue to send with 40 gigabits and uh, this uh, uh, buffer is only consumed with 25 gigabits, uh, as to give an example, eventually that buffer will run out. Right? And when the buffer runs out, means the next packet that comes in has no place to go, uh, and it's basically has to be dropped. That's is, the matter of life. Are those buffers on a, a per, per port level, or is that a switch level? Um, it used to be on a per port level. Um, nowadays, because uh, we mentioned uh, earlier uh, shallow buffer switches, they are configurable to have basically a large pool that can go dynamically to any port that is in requirement of uh, another buffer. But eventually, uh, those uh, buffers run out. Very often, uh, the switches will have like a mixture. So you basically, um, I know from my last week's experience, that, um, for example, the switch has um, a quarter of the memory assigned to a quarter of the ports, meaning uh, ah. so you get some kind mm. of, of distribution so mm -hmm. that, that, that some ports never run completely dry of, uh, of memory, whereas others uh, can hug uh, these uh, memory buffers excessively. 
sometimes um, that's uh, a good thing, sometimes that's not a good thing. Again, you actually have to, to check out these uh, settings in your life environment, unfortunately. Good part here is nothing will break horribly. Um, best thing, best part that can happen is that your performance increases slightly. Worst case, your performance may decrease slightly. So why would anyone buy a shallow buffer switch? Ah, they are cheap. Oh, well, there you go. So you get what you pay for, right? This, this is one of those and as, as long as long as um, basically as long as uh, as long as you have the devices connected to these uh, type of switches at the same speed, all of the uh, all of them at the same speed, say all of them at 10 gigabits, all of them 25 gigabits, or all of them 100 gigabits, um, you can get away with uh, very minimal buffering in the switch because basically the clients can ex absorb. Uh, the traffic at the same speed that it is being sent to the switch. So what it sounds like is there's a low upfront cost for the switch itself, but a higher cost later on because you're replacing all that gear when you upgrade your network. Well, it sounds like you have something else to manage, so you're, you're just trading, also, that, yeah. uh, trading that capital cost for some human cost in, in right. managing it. Right. I mean, um, the matter of fact is that you have to consider that uh, at, the, um, at the switch level, these uh, buffer memories, they have to run at the same speeds uh, as the links that come in. So we're talking here nowadays at 100 gig and uh, very soon, or I believe it's already um, 200 gig switches. Are We're available. already at 200 gig switches? Yeah, I, be I believe so. Not yeah. for hosts yet, but... I'm just saying, that's pretty... Pretty fast. I mean, like, not just fast then, in terms then, of the speed, but fast in terms of the ramp up of how fast. And, and how then consider are. consider that these switches have uh, 32, 64, or even 128 ports running at that speed. Those are beasts. I bet you they're not as cheap as a shallow buffer switch. <laughs> no, they're, they're, no, they are shallow buffers to be in a in a range that is still uh, accessible for for businesses. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm guessing the SFP for one of those costs as much as the. Uh, it's probably, you could probably buy, a, buffer switch. probably buy a Tesla with that. So, right. Um, so, you know, we're talking about end-to-end -end connectivity and how shallow buffer switches can be impacted by different speeds. There's also a, the concept of MTU in, in frame size. Um, oh, yeah. Jumbo so frames, baby. Jumbo frames. Jumbo. So let's talk a little bit about jumbo frames, what they are, and what sort of impact they can have in an environment, both positive and negative. Um, so Chamo Frames, uh, just to give a, a, a little recap, is basically the concept of having larger than uh, 1,500 byte-sized packets. So 1,500 byte-sized packets is, uh, is basically the de facto standard for the Internet. Um, but in the days that uh, Chamo Frames got, uh, got implemented, um, you would still have uh, as, um, uh, on, the, on the host side process each individual packet by the CPU. So there was a cost. There's a cost incurred uh, mm -hmm. basically by each by processing each packet, right, uh, and reducing that cost by typically a factor of six. So the the industry jumbo frame size is around nine thousand bytes, which is a nice uh, multiply um, by six uh, from the from the regular sized uh, buffers. Um, that basically at that time reduced the uh, processing overhead by the CPU um, in accordance. However. Uh, modern uh, NICs actually have a concept called uh, TCP segmentation offload or uh, large receive offload, meaning um, what you do as a, as, a, as a TCP stack, as a host uh, in the software, you're actually throwing a huge uh, um, um, amount of data in the order of a quarter of a megabyte to a megabyte uh, to the network card, and the network card will then uh, uh, carry on with the segment segmentation so that's uh, where the name comes from uh, so it will basically uh, uh, 
uh, cut the data into small chunks, apply the, the appropriate uh, uh, TCP IP header on top of uh, on top of these of these packets, and then send out these packets at wire speed. So that's how it's uh, done right now. So you can think of it from the from the software perspective. Um, the jumbo frames of old have been replaced with these um, huge, gigantic blocks of data of, um, say, a megabyte or so in, the, in, that, uh, in that order. Um, and you're only processing basically one time for one megabyte, one header for one megabyte. So jumbo frames have kind of superseded themselves uh, with this technology. Um, and the, the performance savings that uh, many people would think of uh, with jumbo frames, uh, that's in the order of uh, one to three percent, just because of the of uh, um, how much you save on the headers. That's rather insignificant. So usually that's in the noise. But there's a different uh, there's a different aspect here, and that has again to do with TCP. Uh, so the TCP performance scales. Um, with the size of the individual um, packets. So the larger an individual packet is, the more, um, the faster it can ramp up uh, bandwidth and the more reactive it becomes. So particularly in data center networks, where, so we are talking about very high speed and uh, we are talking about um, a low latency, uh, you want to have a very quick reaction. And that's uh, where jumbo frames really excel. Um, in comparison, so if you consider not only the savings by the uh, by the headers, but if you also consider uh, these improvements by how the TCP mechanisms inter interact, um, you can easily have performance improvements in the order of 10-15%. Okay. And so what about the mismatch of MTU sizes? What can that do? Why, why does that impact a network? So good thing is uh, in TCP the MTU size is actually negotiated between the uh, between the end hosts and also layer three devices like routers. So we've covered uh, that this uh, is a slightly different architecture, uh, perfect fit for virtual IP. Um, even the the routers will interact in this negotiation. Um, however, with layer two devices, layer two devices don't really um, 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 have any say. In this initial um, in this initial um, communication in this handshake, and if you misconfigure uh, a layer two device, a switch uh, to not support jumbo frames, what you can end up with is that the TCP session will be negotiating jumbo frames, um, and these negotiation stuff all goes on with very rather small uh, packets. And then, as soon as you ramp up your, your bandwidth and you start to use these jumbo frames, the jumbo frames will get lost. But uh, don't worry, because uh, we have a new feature uh, since 9.5. I think it was covered uh, last time as well, uh, called uh, black hole detection. So what this means is basically uh, the first time a jumbo frame is sent out, if it doesn't um, get um, delivered in time, the ONTAP system will basically uh, throttle back and uh, refuse to use the uh, jumbo frame for this particular TCP session. So this is very uh, interesting when you have, uh, say, only a single switch in your uh, layer two domain misconfigured, uh, a, mis a simple miss um, 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 over oversight, right? Um, whereas everybody else, every other switch has been configured properly uh, so that the majority of, uh, of your environment will get the benefits of jumbo frames, but you don't have to worry all that much about uh, a single oversight, uh, a single misconfiguration, or perhaps, um, Sometimes people forget to do a, a, a to safety config, and when the switches reboot, they come up back up with uh, some kind of default. 
So if you wanted to enable jumbo frames to test that out in your environment, uh, it's it's something you have to configure on the host and the switch. Correct. And, and that, uh, that's but a it, per but port again, basis. It's it's on on the port basis. That's correct. The good thing is, as long as you have uh, TCP traffic uh, going on, if you want to interact with your um, storage system that has been configured with jumbo frames. Uh, from a client that is not being configured with jumbo frames, there's no problem there because, again, uh, because of this handshake that's, that is being uh, done early on. So as far as networking goes, what are we, what, what's happening in the future? Like, how are we making networks faster? How are we making them more, you know, less latency prone and more like the storage, fabri- you know, NVMe over fabric type of, of technologies? What sort of features are coming to help us with that? So um, I've already mentioned uh, a slight... Uh, um, um, one of the features that uh, that is actually uh, 20 years in the making, that's uh, this explicit congestion notification mechanism. So that's a way uh, by which um, the layer 2 switches, layer th- uh, mo- actually it's a layer 3 kind of feature, but basically uh, literally all currently deployed uh, layer 2 switches um, do support setting uh, of a specific bit in the TCP IP header indicating that they are becoming overloaded. So, um, and what this can do um, when it's uh, implemented properly in the TCP stack um, is that you do not have to have any losses anymore because the switches can indicate early on before they are actually running out of buffer that they are going to to run out of buffers, right? Um, The problem here is uh, something of deployment because basically all three parties have to agree to use that feature. Uh, in order to make uh, to make a, 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 an impact, if only the servers would support it, and by the way, uh, in principle, ONTAP supports it. We have not yet um, enabled this uh, um, on a on a wide on a wide basis for every customer, um, because again, we need to have the support on the switches. We need to have the support on the clients, um, and only then the benefits can be can be had. En- enable it only on ONTAP if you enable it only on the clients, but you do not enable it on the switches. Uh, you do not get any change in behavior other than um, in the, this is something that I always uh, like, if you take a package trace, you would actually get a little bit more information around uh, what is going on with your TCP sessions. Because again, there's these explicit bits in the header and the TCP sender uh, would tell what it is uh, currently doing. And um, building on top of this uh, ECN mechanism that has been uh, standardized in uh, 2001, if I remember correctly, uh, RFC 3168, um, that's um, uh, another mechanism that uh, actually we as uh, in, so we have a research group, um, ATG, Advanced Technology Group, mm-hmm. in here in, uh, in NetApp. And uh, that group um, embarked a couple of years back to implement um, a mechanism called data center TCP into the FreeBSD stack. So there is an open source implementation of data center TCP that has been uh, provided uh, to uh, the community by NetApp um, for data center TCP. As the name implies, that's a mechanism that is uh, specifically designed for um, low latency and shallow buffer environments where you want to avoid any of these uh, detrimental problems uh, having to do with the switch not having uh, all that memory that a regular TCP stack would require. Um, So that's 
something that is uh, that has been done already, um, but is not yet not yet in ONTAP, right? Not yet in. Well, it, it is. It's possible because of the way we've architected the network exactly. stack, right? But it is not currently there for availability, right? Hint, uh, hint. Um, so ATG, we actually covered them in episode one seventy three. If you're interested in listening to that, so continue. I had to plug the podcast. Sorry. Perfect. <laughs> and uh, so um, again, data center TCP. Um, that's um, was um, um, something that has been. Uh, um, specified by um, uh, or developed by Stanford University back in 2012 um, at 2010 to 2011 um, I actually held a, a workshop there uh, with uh, ONTAP folks um, working on, on this uh, data center implementation data center TCP implementation uh, together with the Stanford people if you're running Windows 10 if you're running uh, Windows Server 2016, if you're running Windows Server uh, 2012, or if you're running um, TCP, uh, if you're running Linux, uh, you could uh, test this out already. But again, uh, be careful because um, there is uh, the switch involved and the switch needs to be configured properly. So Richard, you, you mentioned that we uh, developed this and, and open sourced it with uh, BS, contributors to the BSD project. Uh, why would NetApp be contributing to the BSD project? So, um, for those uh, that haven't uh, uh, followed closely, uh, ONTAP has uh, switched to uh, FreeBSD uh, as the as the base operating system. I would want to say uh, back uh, in the version 9.2, and uh, we figured. I mean, this is at least uh, my uh, interpretation of these things. It's much more efficient uh, to keep um, an open source um, uh, source code um, current because you gain all the all the modern mechanisms in there, uh, including especially so my piece of work uh, this uh, TCP uh, stuff. Um, you do not have to reinvent the wheel all the time um, uh, constantly. Well, it's also not proprietary, and you're you're basically following standards more you know adherently than you are in your own siloed environment, right? Yes, right. I see something else on this list here that you've given me. DCQCN. What, ah. is, what is that? So this is Rocky. something that, uh, that that Isaac may be may be very interested in. Did yeah. you say Rocky? Yeah. Cue the theme song. <laughs> to be more specific, it's Rocky version two. Yeah. So it's the second one. So it's oh, so it's the, <laughs> is this the Ivan Drago one? Is no, that's not. No, this is uh, Mr. T. Mr. T. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Richard, you talked a bit about layer two, and I, I know uh, one of one of my favorite things. So in internet land or IP land is not even IP land, just in Ethernet land is uh, uh, MVME over Rocky uh, or RDMA over converged. Uh, networks, yes, or converged Ethernet, uh, v v two, um, and I know one of the requirements uh, is to have switches that support uh, data center bridging. Could you maybe explain what data center bridging is, and uh, you know if there's anything else about Rocky v two you'd like to share? So so Rocky Rocky v v one actually um, tried to basically have um, infinibent like uh, RDMA traffic across Ethernet switches, which are much less less expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the very requirement for that is basically to be lossless. Yes. Data center bridging is basically the attempt uh, to bring in uh, a set of features, uh, among which is uh, flow control, or to be more specific, priority flow control, um, to the switches, so that uh, you can avoid 
losses. Basically, a little bit like uh, what you would have in a, in a, in a sand environment. Yeah. Unfortunately, the matter of fact is that not always works out perfectly, especially if you're not going over a single switch hop, but you have involved, if you're involving multiple switch hops. Mm -hmm. uh, and potentially, uh, God beware, you're um, wanting to have heterogeneous uh, network devices even. Again, I've mentioned uh, the IEEE uh, concerns itself with specifying how uh, data is exchanged, um, you know, how the, how, the pr how the packet looks like, but not so much about the, implement the specific implementation details. And if they change uh, between uh, implementers, uh, between vendors, sometimes um, even though you have this data center bridging, you may still have uh, packet losses even though you ought not to have. So uh, Rocky version 1 basically had this uh, design assumption that packets will always arrive. They will be always uh, timely. <laughs> and that's not quite how it uh, Not a safe assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rocky version 2 then um, has basically found uh, that they have to have some kind of loss recovery mechanism. They have to have some kind of uh, congestion avoidance mechanism. So Rocky version 2 is really a, a, a trimmed down uh, version of TCP uh, that has been implemented also in silicon directly. Um, so s some of the of the lessons learned across the last uh, 30, 40 years in TCP have incorporated in uh, Rocky version 2, among which, uh, uh, one of which is um, this uh, congestion uh, avoidance algorithm called uh, DCQCN. Uh, so DC for data center and uh, QCN is, I think, Fail is too harsh a word, but um, QCN was an attempt by the IEEE to have a very uh, granular congestion uh, or flow control mm -hmm. um, um, kind of um, um, way. It's it's more to have more to do with admission control. Basically, saying uh, I'm allowing you to send X amount of bandwidth, and then you're getting throttled. But uh, QCN really uh, needed the support of the network card, the switches, and all the switches in the entire network, uh, and the receiver. Um, and my understanding is that this uh, didn't really pick up because um, uh, QCN to do in hardware is rather tricky. And uh, again, it's, uh, I don't think that it has seen much um, light of day. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the, the mechanism itself, the mathematics behind, they are sound, right? Uh, so um, uh, Mellanox picked it up and combined this with some of the lessons learned with data center TCB, mm -hmm. combined this in data center QCN. Yeah, I think there's uh, a few vendors will be you know, supporting um, NVMe over, NVMe over uh, Rocky, uh, I believe, this, this calendar year. So. Right. So we'll start to but see the, more the of it, and I'm sure we'll start to see um, a lot more of these uh, problems that arise when we get into the details of actually implementing them. So the thing is that, uh, that uh, even though multiple vendors have implementations, uh, um, Rocky really is a standard that is um, written by a particular vendor, by one particular vendor, yeah. uh, compared to um, uh, the open standards uh, implementation for RDMA over Ethernet networks, which is iWARP. Uh, well, currently, I believe there are many more vendors that are actively supporting <coughs> that. However, uh, it all relies on a good TCP implementation, and yeah. uh, TCP getting TCP right is is not is not easy, right? Yeah. And this is also something. So you asked me earlier why going FreeBSD. 
again, f uh, getting TCB right with uh, 40 years um, of, of, of experience is a challenge. Writing a TCP stack from scratch um, and basically DCQCN is, is, is kind of doing like that. Um, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's hard. So you mentioned having to get your TCP network right. And we've touched on a few things, but as a, as a general best practice, what are some things that people can do to make their TCP network operate the best they can? So short of uh, data center to TCP, which is uh, really a mechanism that is uh, a perfect fit for shallow buffer switches, um, there's another feature that is very often overlooked um, uh, that's uh, very often hidden in the, in the QoS um, configuration of your switches. Um, uh, that's queue management. So basically, I mentioned earlier what uh, how switches typically behave is um, they have buffers, uh, they get uh, packets in at a certain rate, and they may not be able to deliver the packets at the same rate, so the buffer fills up. And uh, by default, that's, uh, um, that's basically really all that is to it. The buffer fills up, and eventually it runs out. And only when it runs out, every packet that uh, then arrives uh, will have to be dropped. So meaning uh, the indication that you have a problem um, only occurs when you are in the, uh, already in the, in, the, in the thick weeds. Um, and these um, AQM mechanisms, uh, they typically run under, under configuration lines with uh, random detect uh, and the like. That basically is a mechanism which allows you to um, early on give this indication either by marking, meaning ECN, or by uh, um, um, a, a single packet drop um, that you're nearing the uh, limit of the capabilities of the switch. Um, so that's something that you can uh, deploy, especially if you're in a latency-sensitive environment. So AQM with legacy TCP doesn't work all that well to improve uh, the absolute uh, throughput, the bandwidth, so if you are running, uh, say, Subhana, which is re really concerning itself with um, with bandwidth rather than latency, then you're probably better off with the with the with what you have. But if you are having, um, say, an Oracle database and uh, you want to have low latency TCP sessions, uh, but you're not requiring the absolute maximum bandwidth, then um, what you can deploy is uh, is a random detect and give this indication that the buffers start filling the latency starts rising in the network um, early on so that the sender that is overloading the network is uh, able to throttle back and uh, relinquish some of these buffers and uh, relinquish um, thereby also some of the added latency. So I was just thinking about this. <laughs> there's, there's a push within NetApp and in general storage of simplicity <laughs> in listening to all these network things. Oh, networking is not simple. Do they get the same criticisms? Like, do customers say, you know what, this networking needs to be simpler. Do you hear this? Is this, is this something that happens? It, it, it is simple if you never deploy any of these fancy features. <laughs> <laughs> it's simple if you want your network to suck. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and, that's the, and that's the status quo. That's the, that's the, that's the, the current, uh, the current uh, state of the art. This, this kind of makes me enraged. It's just like with all the hearing about all these things, like, man, this is a lot of features, a lot of knobs, a lot of things to turn. And uh, to make, to make, uh, to make your, your day even worse. Uh, this uh oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> this, this random detect feature, unfortunately, uh, the, so it has been uh, developed together with uh, this explicit, explicit congestion notification stuff uh, 20 years ago. 
but so far nobody has really come up with a, with a simple, easy to understand uh, way how to tune the four parameters that go along with it. Because basically um, you can get, so in the optimal sense you would have these four parameters tuned at very mo at a very at each moment in time to the to the very um, um, uh, conditions in the network, including the traffic, what traffic, from where to where, which clients are involved, and so forth. And that's simply something that you cannot do. Um, and that's uh, where data center TCP comes in, really, because in data center TCP, the configuration of these mechanisms in the switches uh, collapses to a very straightforward single line that is uh, mathematically proven uh, that if you configure it like that, that's all you need to do. And there is no tuning from, from one moment in time to another moment in time. Um, so just, uh, just full disclosure, um, uh, back in the day, a couple of years ago, I was also chairing the um, AQM working group at the IETF. And uh, we have actually uh, standardized a couple of uh, mechanisms more advanced mechanisms, which would basically make um, this um, this AQM auto-tuning. So you would basically have to just enable it, and uh, and uh, then it would really um, optimize on a moment-by-moment -moment notice these parameters internally without the administrator uh, do it, uh, doing anything. So the four parameters is war, conquest, ah. uh, famine... So if you, if you really if you really want to know it's uh, it's the minimum threshold it's the maximum threshold it's the the, the 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 drop or marking probability and the fourth parameter is uh the it's famine averaging <laughs> the the time goes in there Yeah you, you can access the auto tuning under the T-Pain menu The T-Pain menu uh, yes Okay you could tell that this this discussion is like gone in the nah. hole. It's like we're we're now we're now approaching. What are we at? Hour and eight minutes of networking. So it's driving us a little, a little unless mad. you unless you cut out some of the stuff. We'll cut out some stuff. We'll cut out some of the stuff. Yeah, when well, my wife has trouble sleeping, I'll be sure to a lot of it. Up. A lot of it is getting left in though. <laughs> you need to be a real network nerd to 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 figure out and keep track of all of these features. Uh, so there's uh, there's a uh, there's a whole plethora of uh, uh, mechanisms in the network that you could be deploying. Uh, for example, we have something uh, called quality of service, not only on the storage. So we talk about quality of service mostly in the terms of IOPS and bandwidth and stuff like that. You have something similar in the network, uh, which is supposed to provide um, latency guarantees or bandwidth guarantees. Uh, for example, if you want to have a uh, good uh, sounding um, voice over IP, mm -hmm. so if you have, uh, say, um, conferencing systems run nowadays all run over IP, um, for voice to to work for human, the latency must be uh, restricted to something significantly less than 100 milliseconds uh, end to end, ideally between all of the members of the of the conference. Uh, so very often you have. Um, uh, you have um, a default configuration by certain vendors uh, which will sell both switches and uh, voice over IP gear that basically makes the voice over IP gear work. You, you mentioned in your notes here uh, CLOS networks. Ah, CLOS. Yeah, CLOS, like Santa Claus? Yeah, almost. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the last name of the researcher that, uh, that came up with that. So, so what is that? And so it's, it's, very, it. it's a very well-known um, uh, way of how you nowadays architect your network, um, uh, better known as uh, leaf spine architecture. 
So you have uh, you have your clients, whatever those clients are, including really high-powered ones, only connected to the leaves. And this is important. You never connect anything to the spine. The spine is only there to distribute the data. Um, I most of the times, um, if you're running a, a large data center, you would um, deploy these uh, type of networks, spin life networks, with um, layer three connectivity. Uh, rather than layer two, but there are technologies out there to allow uh, the same type of networks um, to be used as layer two. So um, just so a few name drops like VXLAN or um, there's an ITF standard called Trill, which nobody has ever seen because every vendor who's implementing Trill, that's a uh, transparent, uh, uh, what's it, transparent, lots of, they are redundant, the is it redundant, they are? Uh, probably and the LL is lots of links but I need to I'll look it up anyway wouldn't that be LOL <laughs> <laughs> troll um, so you have uh, you have perhaps uh, heard about a feature by one of our um, alliance members um, called um, um, ACI uh, then there's obviously Juniper who has their own implementation and, and all of them basically rely on this uh, on this drill uh, technology so, Richard, these, you've mentioned these shallow buffer switches. Are there uh, particular vendors that are selling these? Everybody, so basically everybody ev sells them? Everybody sells them. Okay. Uh, so so these, these would just be like entry-level switches? Typically, because, uh, again, uh, as mentioned, the shallow buffer switches have a little memory, a little memory that, is, that has to run at a very, very high speed. Uh, so that's typically implemented as a so-called SRAM static RAM, meaning you have in the order of, um, I think, six transistors for a single bit so that's a lot he's looking at me like i know this i'm like <laughs> okay yes <laughs> so it's basically the same technology that you would have in a layer 2 cache of a cpu and that's for the entirety of the memory that this uh, that this uh, switching engines have so that's the the most dominant factor of uh, of, of the cost is the basically the, the real estate in the in the chip that needs to be there for just for the memory I can see how this happens, right? So the, the the guy who's charged with buying switches goes to like the switch page and like he's like, man, those are really expensive. Then he googles switches and finds one on Amazon for way less. <laughs> no, not not even at Amazon, but they have these really, really, really expensive deep buffered switches. Um, and then uh, you have basically the same thirty-two times one hundred gig uh, connectivity yeah. at uh, say a tenth of the price. What would you choose? I mean, I know what I would choose. I understand why this happens. It's just, it's interesting how there, why is there no middle ground? Is there a middle ground? Uh, the fun part is um, this, uh, this kind of, of, of uh, s uh, problems arise always uh, at a certain moment in time when Ethernet has an has a increase in link speeds. So in my career, I have observed this kind of thing uh, when uh, the link speeds in Ethernet increased from 100 megabit to 1 gigabit. I've observed the very same problems uh, a couple of years later when uh, the link speeds increased from 1 gig to 10 gig. And uh, now uh, we're observing them uh, with the increase from 10 gig to something between 25 and 100 gig, depending on, on how deep your wallet is. Um, but it's, it's, it's as if people haven't learned from history. It's always that uh, as, as long as basically the... The, the the links are all the same speed. You can get away with these shallow buffer switches easily or more easily. Uh, they are not always perfect, right? But as soon as you have these uh, link speeds, um, these uh, step changes in the in the speed in there, 
um, you need to have some buffering if you combine this with legacy TCP. So legacy TCP basically drives whatever bandwidth it can, can get. And if you connect a 40 gig sender um, with a 25 gig receiver, the sender will try to send at 40 gig with TCP. That's, that's what TCP really is doing. Um, so uh, only when, um, the, uh, when the speeds between the servers and the clients get basically level out again, then uh, you will not uh, see this for a couple of years. So it's usually the, 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 the cycles are like every three to five years. So depending on the Ethernet, uh, um, uh, on the Ethernet uh, development. It's kind of like a werewolf. You only see it full moon. <laughs> yeah, and then people forget about it. Yeah. The werewolf doesn't exist. And then full moon comes up. Some more villagers died. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's just forget about this in a month. <laughs> Anything else you want to cover, Richard? I could go very well deeper into all, uh, all of these topics. So um, if anybody's actually interested in this, um, I can be easily found uh, by just Googling my name. I'm, I'm globally unique. You could Google Richard, or you could email us at podcast at netapp.com and request him to come back to talk about a specific subject in more detail. Yes, and I'm actually being paid to do this. To do the podcast? I didn't pay you. Did you pay him, Dan? Uh, No, NetApp pays him just to to be his his smart little self. Just to be Richard? Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's how it works. That is how it works. Hey, you be you. Okay. (laughs) How much will you pay me to be me? Everything. So, all right, cool. So, uh, Richard, again, if you want to find him, you can Google him, apparently. <laughs> yeah, last, my, my last name and my, my first name. The yeah. Schaffeneggers, yeah. there, there, there aren't that many Schaffeneggers. We will put a let me Google that for you link in the podcast show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can just tweet me at Dan Isaacs, and I'll hook you up with Richard. You know, or me, or podcast at netup.com, of course. All right, Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. And, uh, again, if you want to come back and talk deeper about these things, we'd be happy to have you. I will certainly think about that. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontentpodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Richard Scheffernegger for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. 